Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 5, where we are discussing all things coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Two guests join me this week, so please could you introduce yourselves? My name's Ian, uh, and I am currently a master's student at sport, in sport coaching at University of Worcester, and currently coaching um, football in the community for uh, a men's team, a women's team and just because I'm not don't do enough um, a junior club as well. Hi I'm Tom Reed uh, so I am a also student at University of Worcester um, I'll be doing my master's in the sports coaching course there and looking to do a PhD as well following that. Um, do a bit less than Ian got a bit too much on generally uh, so I'm only just the head coach at Stabridge Ladies Development um, and I've been doing that for the last two three years now. Gents, fantastic. Absolute pleasure to have you both on. Um, just a quick one on the blurb for anyone listening. So please do check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to all the content we discuss and other recommendations. So, uh, Ian, we're coming to you first. We'll get straight into it. What is it you are going to present to us? Uh, mine is a book that came out in 2020 um, called Threshold Concepts in Physical Education by Fiona Chambers. Uh, it's, it's always weird. We, I found it weird reading a book that is talking about the pandemic. <laughs> it's the first book I've, I've had which uh, got interrupted by the pandemic. Um, even I'm talking about this book, it's, this book is kind of like the um, top of the iceberg to uh, a, a subject. Uh, but the reason I've picked this particular book is it's the first one, to my knowledge, within the field of sport that's taken this, this theory and the theory of um, threshold concepts it's basically you know, the book's talking about how and it builds on previous work done that within a a curriculum of study in any subject and that can that includes sport there are these uh, key threshold concepts um that are um are important uh, thresholds to to cross and and to navigate through and once you've once you've crossed through them, uh, it opens up a deeper understanding of that subject, or you know, in this case, it would be that that sport, um, and in it's a is a key moment in your development. And another aspect of them is they are really they are potentially really tricky, and the, the book talks about how it's important to identify them and how it links into a constructivist view of viewing the world. Um, and it's about tailoring, even within a curriculum, which can be seen as quite a rigid thing, it's it's tailoring the curriculum and individualizing it to such an extent that you are prepared to help each individual get through that, um, that, that barrier and the thing that they're stuck on as quickly and as, uh, as you possibly can. And get them through these these um, stuck uh, places, which um, was really useful and interesting for me potentially because I've worked in academies before in, in, in development centres, and they they have um, a lot of periodization, a lot of set 
curriculum and you, you are going to do this at week one, this at week two. We, this, now, if you get to a stuck point and you get to this key part that is a stuck point, do you, do you just move on and leave leave the the learner there or do you, do you persist and get them through? And in some of the some of the environments, it's you. That's it. As soon as it's as soon as two weeks is up or whatever it is, that's it. We just we just move on. Um, and then there are set drills and set things to do. Well, well, this but what this is saying and the whole idea behind it is saying that you've got to understand their truth and that that person's truth and understanding and how they how they view the situation because each person's the way that each person gets stuck is different so you applying the same things to everyone might help the majority but there's still going to be those who are stuck in this void of the knowing and, and not knowing and um links into um Vygotsky's work on the zone and basically is the zone of proximal development um but rather than talking about the whole zone it, it's focusing on this one specific part of the zone which is that that gap between right at the limit of what they can do with adult uh, with a learned others support um and how to navigate that through so if, you know if you don't believe in constructivism then that was just a um, a waste of a waste of time. <laughs> uh, mate, really useful. Can... Oh, I'm going to say that again. There's a bit of an echo. Um, mate, really useful. Thank you. Um, just talk me through. How, have you got any examples of those kind of situations happening for you? Is there any kind of, um, you know, any point you remember where you've got to a threshold and you're going like I am really now stuck? Like how how did you get yourself through that? Or who helped you? What what was that kind of feeling? How will people know when they're when they're at that point and they're they're kind of going through this threshold? That's the um, <laughs> that that's one of the biggest problems. And I don't know if it's if it's if it's an irony or a paradox with the whole thing is that the threshold concepts of their self are a threshold concept. Um, to to understand it and get through it takes takes a lot of effort. So there's a lot of argument and debate within this area about what does qualify the threshold concept you know can you even ask people that question that you just asked because people's memories are not that great so if you're asking someone to reflect back on their own learning on any subject how accurate is their reporting going to be and just because and if i navigate through something at, at ease and tom struggles like always that doesn't necessarily mean it's not a threshold concept because I got through easy. It might be something tricky that I just happened to get through easily. And e equally, if someone finds something difficult, that doesn't mean it's a threshold concept. That might just be a concept that they just find tricky. Um, so it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of arguments about it. And I guess the one that I'm, I'm doing, the one I'm picking on for my dissertation is the offside rule in football. Um, because I imagine, well, I've got, again, I'm going back on my memory here, so it's not accurate, but from my memories of it, I struggled, like I imagine most children do, to, to really fully understand that concept. Once I understood the offside rule, it completely changed my understanding of how to defend, how to attack, because there's no point of me as a striker once I've understood the offside rule standing two foot in front of the goalkeeper. 
because I'm going to be offside. There's no point of, and it completely changes how I defend. Defending as a unit and using the offside rule as an extra defender is is a useful skill as a defender. So it it changed my my understanding of the game. But for me to get that understanding, I had to pass through that tricky bit of knowledge. So potentially that one within a field of sport. Um, yeah. So that's that's the longest answer I can give to what was a very fairly straightforward question. I, I, yeah, I mean, you said it's clearly not a straightforward question. That's actually the interesting thing about it, isn't it? So when you get into this type of stuff, it becomes a, a real challenge to define it. As you say, I, I guess the whole constructivist piece is you you create, in effect, your own, certainly your own knowledge, but certainly, you know, arguably your own reality. So actually your perception of um, even this conversation and, and everything you are doing and everything you learn and you understand it is personal to you and no one is ever going to see that through your eyes so it, it I guess does that come then to the heart of what coaching is about are, are we there to try and understand as best we can how somebody else sees the game sees training sees sports sees the world is is that one of our primary roles because it doesn't get spoken about a huge amount I don't think I'm just trying to kind of go back through the last 18 months and I'm not I'm not sure that's cropped up on many in many conversations or webinars about, you know, you'd hear the term meet people where they are a lot. That might be a real kind of simplification of this, but actually how, I guess, so how as coaches and bring Tom in here as well, like how do you guys go about putting yourself in, in someone else's shoes? I feel that this bit, the, the, the reason I've bored you two uh, and now anyone listening with this um, whole concept um over the last couple of months is because it does have the potential to solve a lot of my problems when, when I when I was coming to coaching um you know I want you know, I, I am a, a constructive a social constructivist by by nature and I want to it to empower and I want to give them freedom of choice to a degree um but you you, you can't do too you know too much and understand by under by, by accepting this and understanding this, it allows me to understand it from their point of view, understand what and give them what they need. So if what they need is direct instruction, that's okay within, within this, you know, I'm not, so it's basically giving the green, this whole idea basically gives the green light to say whatever method is needed. And as long as it's right for them and that's what they actually need, then then go for it. Don't be dogmatic uh, with whatever approach you're going for. If, if they're, and I think we talked about before about um, in our lectures about Jessica Ennis Hill wanting direct instruction at times. Well, if that's what they need to get over that hurdle, what you don't, you, you're, it's a, if you're truly athlete centric, then giving them what they want, even if it might seem like it's going against your core values as a coach, might be the right thing to do in, in those certain circumstances. So that's, that's kind of where it's helped me on that aspect with the coaching. Go on, Tom. My thinking then is, because I, I think we can all applaud the individualization of coaching. I think one of the main skills of that is adapting. I think that's one of a coach has to do nowadays. They have to be able to adapt and perform different things. Taking it one step further than what you've just said, 
Do you think it's something that is, that's the sole remit to guide those athletes through that threshold, in inverted commas? Is it, is it something you could potentially also then get other athletes to buy into? So you're getting the, I suppose, as you say, it's more like scaffolding in, in the terms of that, a more experienced other to kind of help guide them through that. Maybe not with the offside rule, but maybe more of the more nuanced things, so a defensive block or setting yourself up for that. Is there a way you could potentially do that as well? Is that something that would also help in part? Because it's then coming from, as a collaborative thing to create that knowledge. It's something that's held within them, not just that kind of coach-athlete relationship. Is that something that could potentially, I don't know, if, is there a way, is that something you thought of? Because I think that's quite an interesting aspect of it as well. Yeah, 100%. Because on this, um, yeah, there's, um, there's a cultural and social element to this. Um, you know, for you to be, for you to progress and you know, to be is if, if you if you're taking a community as a practice angle from this if for you to be accepted into that community of practice or become a um you know a, a legitimate uh, participant within it there are certain thresholds that you might have to get through and some of that's language and and, and culture around that so it doesn't and that's where your teammates you know and the other people can help you and it's about using um <laughs> using all the tools at your disposal um, to, to help them. And sometimes that's quite a directive approach. And sometimes that's completely social, um, which is, which is nice because at the start of my journey, I'm like, I, if I consider myself a social constructivist, I was getting myself in knots saying I can't be directive where actually this says, no, you can, but you just don't do it the whole time. It's about meeting the needs of that individual learner. And if they need a social bit if they need something that you've never done before that's that's not a problem it's just getting them over that line so um yeah it can be used um in theory in, in a range of different ways i think that's really i was involved in a conversation today and it, it just strikes a chord it's really interesting actually around the the paradigm doesn't define method and i think social media is terrible for this in in terms of i guess lots of people and there's language challenges around this and everything else in terms of if i write one word other people interpret that differently etc but actually yeah as you say your your social constructivist paradigm ultimately doesn't define the methods you can use to achieve the goals where i think it becomes really challenging and i still don't have an answer for this and i'm not sure if there is one is actually at what point so you said earlier about um you know, giving the player what they need, how trusting are we of the player's self-awareness to know what they need? Because I think, just say, take new players to a new sport or, or, you know, inexperienced individuals, anything like that, they may have had a very small exposure to methodology, to, you know, coaches and styles and all these personalities, all these different types of things. So actually, how do we then get to a position where, when I say, well, okay, what, what is it that's going to help you best if we're having a one-to-one -one conversation, IDP, call it whatever you want. And they say, well, I just want you to tell me. And then it's that kind of, okay, like what's the second layer of that? Why do you want to be told? Is, is it because that's easy? Is it because it shifts the accountability to somebody else um, in terms of, well, I did what you told me, so it's not my fault. Do you know what I mean? I, th I think it becomes actually a really deep multi-layered conversation and actually a huge challenge because I could be going, I think the last thing you need as a player is to be told what to do. I think you need to experience it and make up your own mind and learn and develop. And so actually did, does that approach potentially put us at kind of loggerheads with some players um, 
uh, yeah, interesting what your guys' thoughts are. Is the warning with it that comes with it straight away is that it's basically saying that um, if you if you um, adopt this, you're identifying key areas that could be both um, really important, transformational to their understanding, and potentially tricky. However, you will not know. So you might you might you be aware that this moment could be tricky. You have absolutely no idea how they're going to find it tricky, why they're going to find it tricky, or how best to get them through it. So all you can do is be prepared and have lots of different things ready and hope that you, well, not hope, but you adjust it and try and use the right one at the right time. But there's no, there's no magic, there's no magic formula and it's almost embracing that aspect, that messy aspect of it. Thing for me, so this touches quite nicely on something I'm actually looking at. And if I do be able to get a PhD, but sometimes I'm really interested in kind of like how reliable are our athletes in actually understanding that. And it, there's a concept, I think it's by Barry Zimmerman, looking at self regulated learning from people. So it's used in multiple areas. Um, but within sport, it's kind of looking at how, in, and in the context of sport, athletes are able to reflect on their performance and learning. Before, so that's so it's the whole reflective cycle. So before the pre-performance, whether that be pre-training, thinking about what do I want to achieve, like what can I do during the actual performance. So when you're actually doing something, how are they learning? How are they interpreting that behavior? Like how, what is that process? And then I think it's forethought as well. So afterwards, it's that typical reflection. What do I learn? How do I learn it? Um, and all the different areas around that. And for me, I think you can encourage people to do that, to, to do that. And so hopefully you've got an idea of actually this is how they want things to happen. But for me, this, this is where, my, where I want to explore in a PhD within this, is, is that exact question, how reliable is it? Because for me, people will only reflect in a way which probably reinforces themselves, if that makes sense. So for me, the importance of identity within that is quite crucial because like, for example, you're not gonna necessarily agree or reflect and actually learn from something if you fundamentally disagree with something. And it might be that that athlete needs, um, might want, for example, a bit more of the, uh, I'm trying to think of the word for it, to kind of like cut the strings a little bit, to give them actually a bit more time to develop, but actually maybe based on the previous coaching experience, who they see themselves as an athlete, they want that help, that support. That's not what they're reflecting on. That might not be what they're telling you as well. So actually how reliable is that? Well, for, to reinforce themselves, that might be what they want, but actually, Maybe it might not be, and I think that's interesting. Just like how how do you how are you able to get that quite authentic voice? If I mean, I think we've mentioned it previous times during the course of the last what, twelve months. But if if I'm not aware of that, how can how can I communicate that? And I think that's a really really difficult challenge for athletes and coaches to be able to understand that. Because if an athlete can't understand it, and we take this approach, then it's difficult to get that, isn't it? It's um. It's a problem that's at the heart of why, you know, this is the, the theory that underpins the book. Um, it's like 15 years old now, and it's not. Be, it's only now just being touched on in sport. And you know, the reason is, is because it's sport is more abstract, and there, there's more opinions. And these, 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 these are this idea of threshold concepts only applies to quote unquote universal truths. Um, so if you have a if you're so things like um, 
engineering, um, mathematics, um, training programs for students, um, apprenticeships, they've all they've been able to use this because there are set criteria to go through. There are within that if you're doing a training course or if you're a, if you're a university student, there are there are criteria you have to meet. You have to you have to go through this. It's not it's not abstract. You have to you have to meet these competencies to to pass. Whereas in sport, there's a lot of, you know, especially getting to the tactical stuff with sport, none of that would cl classified as as this because it's up it's up for debate. You don't have to pass through that threshold. You can go around it. Um, so there's, it's only for those. It only would ever apply to those things that are things you must pass through. So it's it's difficult within a. Um, it's, you've got to be careful with it within a coaching environment, I guess. And that's probably why it's not been taken up. The, the place where it's easiest to see this working in coaching is probably at, uh, uh, we, uh, coach training courses. We, that, that's probably the easiest, the most obvious place to see this. Um, but, you know, apart from, yeah, apart from that, it is, it is tricky to get that, you know, to get that right because it's more abstract than what some other, uh, areas that have taken it up are. Do you think, just jumping back to Tom's point, do you think self-awareness becomes absolutely crucial within this? So I, I, I guess in lots of different ways, people will reflect, but they probably reflect on action um, in terms of the activities they've done or the performance they had at the weekend in the game or whenever it might have been. Actually, I wonder how much we push or nudge people to kind of reflect on themselves because I'm kind of thinking, like, actually, you having a general overview as you go of, you know, at this present moment in time, this is how I view the sport and and knowledge and, you know, what what is your paradigm currently? Because that's that's what is your identity currently? Is they're, they're all things are in, a, I guess, a constant state of flux and, and shifting. But actually, if, if you're never kind of benchmarking that in any way, I wonder whether it becomes really difficult to then look back on yourself and go, you can look back on what you've written about how you performed 12 months ago or, you know, five years ago, or whatever. But actually, if you, if you're struggling to kind of recognize who you were at that point, I'm wondering how useful those reflections are. So actually does this become something that maybe we want to challenge players or people to be a little bit more self-aware of themselves within the sporting context in which they exist? Yeah, I mean, without without the self awareness, so I was thinking, and without the without the self awareness, th this whole thing does it does it uh, it almost completely falls down without without that good self awareness. Um, it doesn't it doesn't entirely because again, if I'm if I'm thinking about to when I was a child, I didn't have that much self awareness around the offside rule. Going back to that, I, there was a time where I got it, and as soon as I got it. I couldn't go back to not understanding it anymore. It completely transformed, transformed it. When you're getting older, it's, it, it, it's I, I can I can understand how having that self-awareness is really important because ironically, some of the papers I read that uh, looked into identifying uh, threshold concepts within a subject um, gave experts in that field the uh, a book on threshold concepts, ask them to read it and then ask them to identify threshold concepts from their point of view. But there's no reflection and guidance to make sure that everyone understood the book in the same way. So 
if my reality of what that book said is different to someone else's reality of what the book said, we're going to come up with completely different answers. Um, And if there's not that conversation and reflection and that that goes on behind it, it just, um, it it, it makes life a lot uh, difficult. And it was ironic reading that within a paper that was trying to find it and they fell into the pitfall which they the, the books warn you not to fall into and I, yeah I, I think that brilliantly sums it up I wonder if that's our biggest challenge as a coach I, I'm just thinking of players I probably didn't connect with particularly well and actually how much you know I'd, and you only know what you know at the time but I, if I'd known about paradigms and, and perspectives more I wonder would I have dug a lot deeper with them in conversations to really try and make a better effort to understand how they see the world but also actually how they see the game and themselves within the game because that that in my head that kind of jumps to straight away if you both see things very differently and, and we see this on I guess social media all the times in terms of even how people view coaching like they don't have the same perspective and they're never, ever going to get close to that. So if I have that relationship with a player where, you know, we can get on and, and it's it's a positive relationship, but we see the game starkly differently, then actually, again, do I need to invest far more time as a coach in understanding how they are seeing that game to then be the position where I'm kind of going, maybe that's why they've made that decision because... I now have a, a somewhat of an idea about what they're looking for as a priority rather than judging them constantly through my eyes. I think that's the biggest difference between my coaching now, I like to think, and my coaching 10 years ago. If 10 years ago, if I was doing, if I was doing a session and I've done it for a few weeks and the child or athlete didn't get it, I blame them. You know, they've not got it. But it was actually, it's my fault because I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> That's the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results or actually they're not getting it. They must be seeing something or seeing it in a way that is different to how I'm seeing it. So they need to be shown it in, you know, in a different way. I should have adapted my coaching to meet their needs rather than me keep doing the same thing and hope eventually that the penny, the penny drops. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't, again, without, uh, I'm just trying to think what the answer is. How do you get to those positions more quickly? Do, do we just have to accept that actually, you know, that takes time to experience those things, get it wrong, learn from them? Do you know what I mean? It's almost that learning cycle then, isn't it? We, we've kind of just got to naturally go through that as coaches, I think, to to then get to a point. It's like being a teenager, isn't it? All the dumb stuff you did and everyone tells you, you know, I goes, I told you so. And actually it's only when you get to some point in your life where you go, huh, yeah, no, actually they, they probably were right. So maybe we just need to accept that. But actually I think we'd maybe do ourselves a disservice if we just said, oh, well, it could take 10 years. Like, can we help each other? And I guess that comes back to, you know, as you say, learned others, mentors, coaches for coaches, whatever you want to call them. Maybe that's their role within this that we need to explore a little bit more in terms of them nudging towards that to, to put us in a position to recognise that slightly earlier. Yeah. And you know, that was there's, there's a core bit on this is, you know, is accepting the fact that there are going to be those those stuck moments and those those difficult bits to navigate and you're not going to know straight away what the best solution you know you, you, you've got but the the idea is if you're aware of it at least you can have different ideas and different ways prepared and 
ready rather than you being caught off guard by it. Um, so yeah, you won't get it straight away, but maybe by having an appreciation of understanding this, the, the time that they're in that, what it's described as a liminal space, but the, the, the time they spend in that liminal space is reduced, which is probably going to be a benefit for both uh, their mental well-being and mine. Fantastic. Um, I'm conscious we could probably spend a long time discussing this in in far more detail, but um, we'll, I think we'll probably park that one there. And Tom, we will shift across to you. Uh, what is it you are going to talk to us about? Thank you. Um, so I've been inspired by Mark Cavendish's efforts in the Tour de France. I actually paid more than a cursory glance at Eurosport for the last couple of weeks whilst everyone's been sinning themselves. And it's got me thinking about how, for me... It, how is performance interpreted? So Mark Cavendish, I think, as everyone's aware now, came back, 34 stage wins, I think it is, tying with Eddie Merckx. Um, yeah, as well as that, I think he got the green jersey. Yeah, as well as that, I think he came third last. And it just got me thinking, I mean, how do we perceive performance? So it got me researching, like striving the academic archives of our library. Um, and it just came to, to this, to be fair. So I'm coming from it with absolutely not much knowledge of cycling at elite level. Um, and so the paper I came to was a paper by Catherine Phillips and William Hopkins uh, called Determinants of Cycling Performance, a Review of the Dimensions and Features Regulating Performance in Elite Cycling Competitions. It is a say what you see sort of paper. Um, and it's really useful for me as an oversight. And actually, and the way it's helped me is to actually understand how broad performance can be and how there's, there's a lot more that regulates performance within cycling, more than I thought, and thinking about how that can impact on how I coach within a sport. Because to an extent, cycling and football is a bit different. Cycling, you've got obviously individual kind of goals. You've got, you're fighting for your own individual positioning, as well as kind of like you've got a main player within that team. Uh, so whether that's someone going for like, the um, yellow jersey or whether it's someone kind of like pushing for um, just like one of the different shirt but jerseys they're going for uh, it, it, there's, there's kind of like a contradiction contrast there and actually for me when we when I speak as a coach in football thinking about performance if, what am I using to determine that largely I mean the easiest one we always use is win-loss possession key passes all the sort of stuff like goals all the sort of stuff that's coming from it and what this paper's done is kind of just opened my eyes to actually how much more contextual that goes into these different things that can actually decide what um, performance entails, really, and like what meets that. And it's essentially a systematic review looking at previous cycling literature, looking at what they found, like looking at what have been the determinants from that. And the way that they've done it in cycling has been quite reductionist compared to previous areas. And actually what does influence and impact on performance is much more widespread. So that could be from the individual. So you're looking at kind of like the actual, just their body build. So I think it's um, mesomorphic um, looking at kind of like the country going across to kind of the more contextual. So you're looking at kind of like what sort of like structures the team in, how do you interact with the peloton? Like kind of how abiding to the peloton's norms are you? Um, and as well as that, I'm trying to think what the final one was. Um, uh, give me a second. Um, I think it was kind of more the tactical. I think it was actually, what are the tactics of the team? How is that working in your favour? Um, and it, for me, it's just really fascinating. When you think about, I think what, what we've seen from Cavendish is that he's performed. And 
it got me thinking of when you've got about eight other people to push one person to, I think it was four stage victories and to the green jersey ultimately. Yes, one person's performed based on what they want to do. And that's kind of like what the team's been set up to do. But it's also then got me thinking about kind of those individuals that are kind of like pushing that. So you've got the, uh, I think it was called now, the, um, what was it called? The person that leads it. Mm-mm-mm. I think it's just the lead out cyclist, actually. I think it's quite easy. And then you've got the domestiques, the lead riders. And it's, it just kind of makes me think about those other people. I think we know teams previously, at least where I've coached, where you've probably got one player who's trying to, you're a bit kind of like pushing for things and actually doing things and yet you've, you're asking maybe other people to maybe change how they view their role change their performance a little bit or just tweak it to kind of accommodate maybe one or two different athletes and for me a key thing there is how how we how do we motivate those people when you've got a, a large amount of people that can perform really well they know their roles they can perform on a normal basis absolutely perfectly well how do we then kind of try to talk to these individuals and actually say, well, you might have to curtail what you do here. We don't want you to be kind of, for example, in football, a winger cutting in because actually it doesn't make it perfect for a key striker because that's where we want to play into. Like, how do you motivate your athletes to do that? And I think that's really, really hard as a, a coach to think of it because it's kind of your, it's kind of making sure that people have got a role, but if it's not something that they've, got used to they think they could perform or actually they think they can do more than that and if they're especially high performing I think that's really really difficult in the paper it makes mention of so in that lead out for sprinters in particular the sprinters that do better are actually the ones with a team around them that actually aren't necessarily the high superstars or kind of that are expecting much to do much within either the individual stage or the individual tour it's the ones that actually are built for that team and I think we potentially know of teams within I know individual sports that kind of that have shown that maybe Leicester might be a really good example maybe with Vardy and they still had some key performers here and there but actually when you're trying to I think this has been an issue again football related with Real Madrid when they had the um, I think probably like last couple of years really when you've got a few players where you're kind of hinting that these are the players you want there how do you motivate everyone else because I think it can cause a lot of friction and it also for domestics in particular once they've done the job, that's it. So how do you stop that from happening within football? Because you can't just, for example, get two goals from that person, allow them to play well, and then just stop your job. And so just it, it just got me thinking about how do you change that different idea of performance then? Because I wouldn't be expecting from those individuals to be doing everything perfectly well as I'd expect to in a normal game. And as well as that, then if we are successful, is it because of that individual, which I've built everything around, or is it because of the collective efforts that I've kind of built around them? Like what's been the key factor? And as a coach, it's, it's just one of those things where, you, where you've got a dynamic of people where you might try to make the best of what you've got with what you've got. Like how do you manage those resources yet keep people, like kind of get people to stay motivated and actually performing as you want them to rather than necessarily how they want to be performing? how do you manage that? And I think that's just, that, that for me was just a very interesting question with that different dynamic that cycling has compared to football or another team sport like that. Um, and it's one I don't really have an answer to. It's kind of, I think adaption again, I think is key to a lot of things with coaching, 
but I think in practice, I don't think that works quite as well. So it'd be interesting to hear both of your thoughts and kind of how do you, how can you manage that? Like, do you just need like one person and then you just kind of like, well, right, we can't have everyone being amazing, can we? Like, what, how do you manage that? Yeah, that's, there's some awesome stuff in there. I think that's a really good question. Um, I think I, I literally just wrote down on my notes, like how do we build performance measures with minimal kind of data? I think that's that's quite interesting, as you said. Like win losses is clearly for most people, I guess, the, the like the main benchmark. But actually, the very nature of that sport, um, you might be in a league where you're just not not as good as everybody else. So uh, the example that jumps to mind: some of the kind of developing nations in the Rugby World Cup. I think it was Uruguay stated in 2019 uh, lose lose to Australia. Um, by less than 20 points. So actually, like, they're accepting that, and there's a real, I think, self-awareness of the collective of where they are. Like, they're not going to be a tier one nation. If they do, and clearly they're preparing to win, but losing by less than 20 is equivalent to winning for them, which is which is awesome. And I, and I, I just wonder, actually, how willing coaches, players, collective within sport would be to do that more often, to say, yeah, look, clearly we're going to do everything we can to win but we're going to be really realistic about what else success looks like. So only conceding one, not four. Um, or, you know, the, 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 there's a number of other measures, but I, I just think changing that picture is is probably pretty key to that. Um, I think in terms of the individual stuff, I, I just think it's clarity on roles. Like we, I would spend a lot of time, certainly with the, with the uni this year, making sure having those conversations, talking through, working and training on what is your role within this team? Because actually, I think the skill of the coach actually is is to to maximise all of the super strengths, call them whatever you want, of all of those players. So if your game plan isn't built around all of your players, I kind of have lots of questions around that. Like why bring in a copy and paste game plan or a game plan that isn't? designed specifically for your group because are you then asking people to do things that they're not capable of doing or that they're uncomfortable with doing or like yes your job then is to coach them and make them better but are you setting yourself up to fail and potentially setting them up to fail if I come in and say well we're going to play a I don't know three five um two and we don't have the wingers to do that well Actually, that that's just got a huge knock-on effect for everybody, rather than a four-four-two, which may be far easier and better suited. And that shows literally the limits of my football knowledge because I know two formations. So I, I'm I'm pleased that I've snuck that in there. But um, you know, yeah, I I, th- I think it's fascinating. As I said, I don't have a, a definite answer, but I definitely think how you build a, I guess, a game model or a performance model around your individuals in your squad and as a collective. Like that's got to be the starting point to my mind. But Ian, what are your thoughts? Yeah, when you were, um, <clears throat> when Tom was uh, talking it through, it reminded me of that uh, Jersey Dudek story. Um, you're not a football guy, Phil. So just, uh, do you know who Jersey Dudek is? Yes, I think I do. Yeah. So he, um, someone interviewed him. He um, said, are you upset that you, you went to, um, Real Madrid after winning the Champions League with Liverpool and played half a dozen games in like four years. Uh, I got paid a hundred grand a week to watch Real Madrid uh, uh, 
so no, I was quite happy. And he's just so he, whereas if you had a different person there, then obviously they're not going to be, so it's finding the right, you know, you know what your certain roles are. And if I'm thinking, if I'm someone like Bottas in F1, he, as much as he outwardly is saying, I'm, I'm going to be challenging for the, the title, there must be an acceptance or an understanding there that Hamilton is going to come first within that within that team and sometimes they do the, the strategies adjust so or finding that when Portugal won the Euros we're going to build a team around Cristiano Ronaldo and you, you are going to play, he he is the main man he is going to be the heart and soul of, of of this team and he's basically going to um and everyone else is basically playing second fiddle as long as everyone as long as the buy-in's there I guess that whatever system or approach you're having is, is all on those individuals and the buy-in and the acceptance and the agreement that that's, that's going to work. If, if, if Southgate had tried to do that sort of model with, with England this summer, would they have been as successful? I, I would find that, I, I would probably argue not. If, if Bottas was wheel-to-wheel racing, with, with Hamilton and costing the team points, would that be that successful? So I guess it will just getting the right people with the right attitudes to meet the right needs. But that's that's tricky because you know convincing people that they're not going to be the star, or well, like you were saying about the, the Uruguay example, I, I'm setting up a grassroots women's club and getting them to understand that there are going to be some really tricky games and some the top of the table, our goal is going to be not to lose by more than five. And actually that's quite a ambitious target when you're in the women's pyramid, um, your first season. So getting the buy-in and the understanding of that tricky, but I guess that's crucial for whatever approach you're doing. I, I also think it probably depends on level quite a lot in terms of, now, I, I know England rugby in part of their strategic plan. Um, I think the the men had win the World Cup in 2019. I think the women's was make the final. So I, I think just being quite clear with those stated goals from a, a, an elite performance perspective, had, had you know the Football Association turned around and said, success for us will be making the final of the Euros. I th- is that a positive? Yeah, I think so. Because again, it, because it's just a benchmark. If they don't make it, then you can go, okay, well, why didn't they? If they make it, then it's managing expectation to say, well, we think we've been really successful, even if we don't go on to win it. And I think everything else then becomes a bonus. So, uh, you know, coming back to almost those, like it's a huge cliche, isn't it? But those like smart goals, well, actually, if you do them properly and they're really well considered and well thought out, then I think it puts you in a position to to still achieve, I think, to be confident in your ability to achieve what you stated, but also to to really actually have that opportunity for, I guess, kind of, yeah, it'd be like getting too businessy. It's almost like those stretch targets, isn't it? So if, well, if we hit those, well, actually, maybe we've overachieved or maybe we're just absolutely buzzing and we're really confident off the back of we've hit something that we thought we could do, but we weren't sure rather than that kind of just absolute definitive, well, we've got to win the tournament. Well, great. Well, now it's a zero-sum game. So anything other than a, than a win is is going to be seen as a failure. And it's kind of, yeah, I, th- I think you could manage that far more easily at a community level than you can elite sport level. That would be a huge challenge in terms of the PR. 
I always worry um, when I see, sorry, Tom, I always worry when you see those hard and fast targets, so we're going to get to X, we're going to get to here, like, there's the psychology behind it. I imagine, I, I can't remember which footballer it was, it might have been Merson, who said that when they brought in the uh, tracking their, the, the runs they did, he said, you have to do X amount of sprints. So he knew that, oh, I know I'm coming off, so I'm just going to quickly do some random sprints and I've hit my, I've hit my target. You know, you can encourage people to, you know, to cheat. If you don't hit your target, then you're labeled as a failure, but there might be reasons behind it. You might've progressed. And if you, and if you hit your targets, you might've been quite fortunate to hit your target. If my target is to win one, um, one race in the F1 and I'm in eighth and there's a seven car pile up in front of me. Yes. I've hit my target, but what you know, did I, did I, what, were my perform other performance indicators behind it really good? Am I going to rest on my my laurels? So, this, you know that bit's always a bit. Um, I find that really tricky. And then when I come to trying to put targets on athletes and progression for a club, I I find it hard not to fall into those traps. I want to put targets onto my club, you know, the the women's this season. What are our targets going to be? Well, if I put we're going to finish fifth. And we finished sixth. I've now labelled my whole team on the first ever season a failure. And is that is that a fair approach? A fair approach to do it? But having going into it with absolutely no ambitions and targets and direction that we're aiming for, is is, is pointless because you're just is, is is aimless. So finding the balance, I guess, is um it's quite a tricky one. Sorry, Tom, I, I jumped in on you. No, it leads lovely. It was like it was planned, Ian. If I didn't try and interrupt you. Um... <laughs> I think it, this is pretty much where it's at for me. Like the thing with the FA was that we were meant to qualify for the finals and then win it. Yet the amount of people complaining that Southgate didn't use the like the most of his abilities just to reach a target, which was the Euro final. Like I think that can sometimes it does massively limit you. But then you're thinking as well, what what is what is the mind of these players? What are you what is their motivation from it? Is it now this fixed point of? This is what we need to do. Not including, not thinking about any of the contextual information. This is why we should. This is why you should be doing it. This is why I'm doing it. Is it something where actually we need to be a bit more adaptable in our in our goal setting? So it might mean that we have to kind of change how that motivation works. Because if it's if we are if we've got athletes that are performance based and performance motivated as well, if we've got a target which, as we I think we've said that it can change quite regularly because of contextual factors. And actually having that fixed goal doesn't help with anything. If you constant, if you're having to adjust and adapt that end goal, which makes which can make logical sense and is absolutely fine, what do you do for that motivation for that player? Because if they're motivated that by that performance, and it might be that due to context, it might be, oh no, we've I'm trying to think at our level, we've not managed to get the amount of players we're in. So we've got we're short, we've got a short amount of players now. We've, we've got maybe 17. So is it a case of now we might not be able to? It's kind of that negotiation. It's kind of that, that it's, I think that's difficult because then if that player's not motivated because now actually, well, that target's not quite what you said it would be. How do you change that motivation? Is it something we, well, we can't change the target now? We, I mean, for you, we might try and look into it, but what do you do for those areas? I think it's just, it's, it's an interesting one because I think for me, it does... I think it's good to have adaptable goals based on everything that you can, but also you need some of the fixed, but how do you motivate those players within it? 
so a big one for me this year, I, I've ended up writing a few assignments about this and I've probably bored you guys with it already, but um, was just around kind of self, uh, self-determination self theory. So actually you kind of come back to, it, it would effectively be like three basic needs. So competence, autonomy and relatedness. And actually, I think when you start, I when I kind of really got stuck into this and looked at what the training environment, because obviously there were there were kind of hardly any games at all this year, but actually just how how you can build a training environment around hitting those three, I think is absolutely huge. So kind of under getting that understanding. So I I, I would think the IDP kind of is the baseline for me of this to recognize, well, what is their level of competence currently? And how do we how do we kind of shift that further forward? How do I make training related to what they want to improve on individually, but also as a collective? And then actually, how do I give autonomy um within sessions to, to to have opportunities to choose when they want to be working on certain things and and i think if you start with that individual process second layer is then you're building that kind of team profile and all of this is hugely subjective um but i think as long as the player is consistent and, and the, i would argue the period of time we work over is so short it's unlikely they are going to have changed identity or paradigm or, or whatever drastically within that time like if you were talking about doing this over 10 years then you'd need to do a lot of work around the the benchmarking and how that looks but for a player to sit down at the start of the season and say well I think my I don't know my gameplay is going to be ranked at whatever seven out of ten come the end of the season I would expect their understanding or their perception of gameplay not to have changed too much so I think the, the consistency of the individual is key to then be in a position to go, well, actually, have have you improve your competency? And I think that then comes through the relatedness and the autonomy. So, yeah, I, I think things like that can be really powerful in allowing the coach or enabling the coach, probably better turn a phrase, to actually create an environment where players remain motivated. I think in the vast majority, people that play competitive sport are competitive by their nature. Like you don't, it's unlikely you're going to get many uncompetitive people wanting to really push themselves and challenge themselves in these environments. So playing off the back of that, but I, I do think if if you've lost that element of they they don't see why training is relevant to them, it doesn't engage them because they don't have autonomy and all these types of things, then I think you're on a slippery slope to to other things. or, or you end up with the um, Dudek example where they're just there for money. So if it's an extrinsic motivator, then, okay, fine. Like as long as, again, the benchmark is set against what your level of performance is for your your payment or what whatever, I, I think you can manage it either way. But, I, 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 yeah, I would argue intrinsic motivation is clearly going to be far more powerful, I would think, in the main. There's, there's an interesting bit in that and kind of – one of the issues I'm currently experiencing my coaching, so development team, I think it's tier eight, I think it is, Midlands League. One of the things, so it might just be very connected to a development team, and it might be something similar to, like, I don't know, sides in the conference, North and football. But one of the things we're struggling is actually we're now at a point where that motivation is now having to change. So as you said, like, you probably expect some people when you're looking at that, performance level to you probably wouldn't have just people doing it for fun or anything like that there's just social reasons but it's interesting because based on our mate parent club 
that has had to then force kind of like a nice culture change within the rest of the club to like filter down. And it's been interesting. One of the main challenges has been that in itself. We've got players that are actually intrinsically motivated. They're, they're there for fun and it's worked to an extent. But actually now I'm having to change to an extent to have that performance basis. The players I'm now looking at, I'm not intentionally, but I'm, I'm having to see it, is I want that performance motivation to an extent now. And I find when you're kind of given that, when that's been forced upon you, managing that change, trying to help my, my players get through that as well, is such a struggle for them more than me, but also trying to manage that whilst it's happening. That's been a massive, uh, I wouldn't say it's a struggle, but it has been challenging. And thankfully, it's only been, what, a couple of weeks pre-season? But for me, trying to tap into that is going to be, I can tap into how I know they're motivated and doing the fun. But as well as that, is that enough for them to be at the level where the club's dragging what one it goes to be, to where I'm kind of having to push everyone else to set the standards to be? It's really difficult. And it's now a change of, well, it's kind of been forced upon us now. So is it just a change of place because that motivation is not quite fitting with what's happening, happening with the team? I don't know. And that's where now I'm kind of torn within myself. It's, it's really difficult, really one for multiple reasons. What, what kind of timeline are they giving you on that, Tom? Because I, I, I doubt that's uncommon in, in terms of, you know, suddenly clubs have ambitions they didn't mm. before and they change things. So it's, I'd be interested to know actually kind of how, how quickly do they think this will happen or is it a more of a longitudinal view? Well, this is the thing. I think this might be something within women's football particularly. It's, it's relatively short. So we've been given a time frame of four years. So we're quite an ambitious club. Um, originally, we only set a, like started up last season, obviously with the issues that happened there. Um, we were just kind of like, give it a go, see what happens, see how the leaves fall. This season, we're expecting promotion. Again, not an issue. But then because of how the structure works in the first team, We'll be then kind of like promoted into National League. If the first team get promoted again, we'll be promoted into the National Reserve League. And that in itself is a, it's kind of completely out of our hands that. So if the first team make that promotion, which they should, we'll be now at that level, not necessarily through our own efforts, but I'm imagining the teams within that high level for us, again, have a completely different, because the first teams have got that culture already embedded the development team will have the culture embedded. And then we're going from where we've been, and we've been all right, to be fair, with how we've got it, but we're going to have to, and that'll be literally next season. So within the space of three seasons, you've gone from give it a go to push for promotion, which I think we can do, to, right, well, now we're pushing, the first team's pushing, we're expecting you to push that now. And I think that, I think women's football particularly is just, there's a lot of clubs now, in particular the lower tiers, that are, pushing a bit more with the money coming into the game all the different elements outside of it and the coach managing that and helping to manage our players it's a lot I think for anyone and I think it's yeah finding that balance and how to be able to prepare them for that prepare myself for that yeah it's an interesting one it, it, I think it is because of that time frame yeah that's a really interesting challenge and I, I wonder if that's the natural kind of leads to the natural migration of players. So at some point, a number of those players, I would guess, will probably step away and go, this doesn't now meet my 
kind of motivational or, or psychological needs. Um, you know, socially, it still might. They might still be a really close team and they get on with everyone, but actually it, it's moved beyond where they feel comfortable and beyond that kind of stretch point or, again, whatever you want to call it. But they'll they'll drift away and you'll naturally start to attract other players, new players that do have that motivation, but see it as a stepping stone to then being able to, you know, play in a reserve team, be in a club that has got ambitions and is successful and then move into that first team. So I wonder, yeah, I guess it's not fighting a losing battle, but it's, I think it's maybe being quite accepting of the fact that that probably is a natural performance cycle. You know, the, the, if, if you, drew it as a diagram the players at the the lower end of that motivational scale in terms of a performance motivation will will start to drift away and you'll just shift and bring in new players that that kind of meet it meets their needs but also their performance level meets your expectation um so i, I don't necessarily think it's a it's a, it's not a bad thing i get i guess actually what the the nirvana is almost having a a team at a lower level and there's probably multiple examples of this that just they they keep that core connected it's not a constant turnover of players it's okay there's 10 12 of us we we want to be successful and take the club through the leagues and and kind of do what you want to do and then you kind of bring in the bolt-ons around that rather than that constant search for you know five players in five players out every year that for me is i think it's that culture you've nailed it on that literally it's that culture how do you create a culture when it's just very short time frame without losing that core because a key part of what we've done within the club, it's the same with the first team, but it is that culture. And if it does happen, will it mean we'll have to completely build that up again with the players that are leaving because of that? It's, I think that's more of a will it, won't it sort of situation. As you say, it is exciting. It's a really exciting challenge to have. But then it's like, so then how do you build that culture without those kind of like, I suppose in the community of practice, those kind of like practitioners right at the top there to actually disseminate that culture down how do you create that because i'm complete i'm also then in that new situation so i'm not really an old timer in that kind of like in that area so yeah i think it's just and that's that's the interesting aspect of it it's definitely an, an intriguing one just how i think we think as coaches we've got kind of like a um a blank like slate to work on and coach and operate in but actually there's so much more beforehand and it's just digging into that is such it's exciting, but it, that's where the challenge lies, I think. Working and operating in a context that's not necessarily your control and just working within that. That's really that's, that's one of the skills I don't think any coaching course has quite yet prepared me for yet. That's a really interesting point. And I, I guess I think that a lot of the value from coaching courses, is, as most people will say, is actually the conversations you have with everyone else on the course. And, and, you know, I would, I would argue probably it, it's got different challenges, but I think the reserve or second team coach manager, I think those roles are probably the most difficult in any club because your job is number one is to develop good players. But every time you develop a good player, they'll end up moving up into the, so you're always losing your best talent. And anyone that's coming down is probably pretty pissed off that they're having to come down. So then you kind of got that ego management and there's just all those other things that go into that. And as you say, yeah, maybe that's a course in itself. That'd be a pretty fascinating course. But actually on the courses, if you're talking to other people and how they manage those processes and those challenges, then, you know, you, you're going to get a lot of learning, I would think, come from that. But it's, 
yeah, it's, it's definitely a really, really difficult position to be in. And again, maybe it kind of comes back to the point when we finish with Ian that you just learn through experience. You just learn through doing it, getting it wrong, trying to work hard and, and do it better the next time. But as you said, because the context is always slightly different, that's that, that's almost a near on impossible task. But I guess that we can only do our best in that sense. Um, guys, that, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Again, I'm, I'm really conscious we could probably just keep going and going, but um, I think we will uh, we'll finish that one there. So, um, Ian, I'll jump back to you for recommendations for other quality content that you're going to give people a nudge to, to have a look at. Uh, I'm going to go for uh, keeping the theme of what I was talking about uh, with Threshold Concepts. If that's something that anyone ever wants to read, it's a nice light read of you know, 400, 500 pages, um, but that's uh, Threshold Concepts in Practice. Nice little thin book. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Works well as a doorstop if you know you haven't got one of those as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Tom, what are you recommending for people to take a look at? Um, so I'll recommend a few TV series if the book doesn't quite do it for you. Um, one of them, a bit left field, is a documentary called On Point. It's on Disney Plus, um, so you can expect sort of content, the feel good story that's there. Um, it's a similar to all the sporting docudrama, kind of like documentaries that's out there, um, but it follows a ballerina, com- uh, sorry, a ballet company, sorry, in New York. And from a coaching point of view, it's just interesting to see how things operate in that field because it's similar learning techniques but actually it's still very very different it's just interesting to see how learning is done in that context so that was interesting and the other one i'd recommend just for a nice um casual watch is when eagles dare on amazon prime which follows crystal palace i think um and again looking at that from a coaching point of view and just players um it was just a very kind of like i think um changing time period for him and there's a number of different events that happen within that season which they go through um and it's just interesting because it's very it's a retrospective one not done at the time so it's just interesting to see how players viewed that those incidents how managers viewed those incidents um in particular one where the players just decide to take tactics into their own hands during a series of games um but how that's resolved as well um I think the manager actually, I think it was Ian Holloway at the time, um, and managed to adapt it. But just thinking about how that process works and what would happen, I don't think it's shown much in these documentaries. So it's just something that I thought and reflected on, actually, what would I do in that situation? So, um, yeah, give both of them a nice little watch. Fantastic. Not to be confused with Where Eagles Dare, which was a um, correct, yeah, interesting yeah. war film with Clint Eastwood. So you know, watch that. Feel free to. I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a half decent movie, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so no one's confused. Um, yeah. Guys, this has been absolutely fantastic. I've really enjoyed uh, the discussion. So thank you both very much. Uh, Going to round up the roundup. So to those listening, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to my guests for their time and contributions to a fascinating discussion. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. As always, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. Go well.